We're going, to looking, we're going to be looking at reasons for thankfulness that should be our greatest reason for our salvation, which should be our greatest reason for thankfulness. Salvation through Jesus Christ. Now, we're, we're going to be doing a little bit more of a doctrinal study here than an exegetical expository uh, study of going through a single passage. Um, so this will be a little bit differently. So we're going to look at a couple of num- uh, number of different passages very briefly and just trying to bring a few things out as we're tying together some of the aspects of salvation um, that we don't, that we maybe understand or maybe have heard a term here or there, but we want to really understand these things so that we can, we have this idea of thanksgiving that we realize these different aspects as we give thanksgiving for salvation. Now, the big idea, I think I have there in your notes, our salvation is only of God, and to be truly thankful, we need to understand certain aspects of salvation. And to do this, we're going to look at three main points. We're going to look at our need, our being set apart, and the finale. We're going to look at our need, our being set apart, and the finale. So first, we're going to look at our need. First thing there is is our sin nature. We need to understand what the need was and is for those who haven't trusted in Christ yet. Our need is that the sin nature that we all have as humans. Scripture is very clear about the human sin nature and our spiritual state without God. Now, some of these verses are going to be uh, familiar, but it's good to remind ourselves of these things. In Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, Paul strings together a number of Old Testament quotations that support and show the, the, the universality of sin, that sin has spread through every human being. Sin has affected all people, both Jews and non-Jews. And this is his thesis. This is his point in Romans. And Romans 3.10 is very familiar to us. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. And as if we move down through Romans 3, we get down to verse 23 and we read, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. There isn't a single person other than Jesus Christ because he was the God-man. He is the God-man. That there is not a single person that has not sinned. Sin. And a few chapters later in Romans 6, verse 23, we read what sin gets us. What is the reward that sin, sin brings to us? For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And it's not just Romans that describes our sin nature. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 reminds us that before salvation, that without salvation, humans are dead spiritually because of our sins. And that we we walk, in this world, we walk in this life 
according to the prince of this world, which is Satan, and whose power works in the sons of disobedience. We disobey, we sin, because we center our lives based on our desire and our lusts of the flesh. And living this way only brings about the wrath of God. And God has issued judgment for sinners, and that is death. Without salvation, we are dead spiritually. And physically, we we will die physically because there is sin. And ultimately, without salvation, the death is final as an eternal separation from God. Because of sin, everybody and everything in this physical world dies. Now, death was not part of God's original creation for our world. When Adam and Eve sinned, God's judgment came. Adam was warned not to disobey. Otherwise, God would allow him to die. But physical death wasn't the only death that was brought in. As we mentioned previously in Ephesians 2, humans died in a spiritual sense as well. And because our sinful state and our spiritual death, every part of our being is tainted by sin. Now, this is commonly known as total depravity. We can see the scriptural emphasis on the depravity of humanity. We've looked at Romans 3, 10 through 18, but there's also Jeremiah 17, 9. You've heard, trust your heart, follow your heart. You've heard those sayings. Jeremiah 17, 9 is the reason to not follow your heart. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Don't follow your heart. Your heart is going to take you to sin. Especially if you are not, if you have not accepted Christ. Now there are, there are passages in Scripture that describe that since humanity has fallen, nothing we do or say in our fallen state is ever truly good. And that within our fallen state, we can never truly understand good. But even the desire to do good is tainted by by our sinful desires. Because of our depravity and our fallen state, we are completely unable to do anything for our salvation. God must do the work. God had to move for our salvation because we are completely unable to do it in any way ourselves. So God had to act. God had to act. Now there are a lot of elements in the doctrine of salvation and, and in the doctrine of the atonement and we're not going to touch on them today. There are a lot of elements such as election and God's foreknowledge and predestination. We're not going to take the time to look at those today. That's, that's a discussion for a different time. 
However, I will say that in God's planning in eternity past, God elected of his own free will for his own purpose and glory those who would believe and accept Christ as Savior. The only element of election I want to discuss is the fact that it has nothing to do with what we as humans are able to do. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 make it clear, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. God moved. God had to move. God acted. There was nothing any one of us has ever done or could ever do that would warrant God saving us. And this is why God had to move, why God had to act. Galatians 4.4 tells us that at the appropriate time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. At the time God had predetermined, God the Father sent God the Son as Jesus Christ, fully man and fully God, for the work of salvation. God had to act, and there was nothing any human could do to save himself or the rest of humanity, except Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man, he is without sin. He has never sinned and could never sin. Christ lived a sinless life, died a sacrificial death, accepting the judgment of God for sinful humanity by dying on the cross, and he overcame death through his resurrection on the third day. This gives us spiritual life, and hope. So now that we have this opportunity, what do we do? How do we move forward? We have to hear the gospel. We have to realize and be told that we are sinners, that God is holy, and that Christ is the only way to salvation and our only access to God. And we need to know that the only way we can receive salvation is through our personal faith. As Acts 16.31 reads, So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Once we have accepted Christ as Savior, there is a change in us. And God then sets us apart. This is our second point, that we are set apart. Theologians over the years have tried to put together a logical or even chronological list of the order of salvation. Many of these elements that happen in this order happen in the same instant. And so many of these man-made lists are merely a logical exercise and really nothing that should be held onto dogmatically. And we're not going to really touch on all of these items, but we're going to touch on a few. The first that we're going to look at is regeneration. Regeneration. The first one we're going to look at is regeneration. Regeneration is new life. It is to be born again. 
Paul talks about this in Titus chapter 3. In Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 4, Paul writes, But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Though having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. There in verse 5, through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. That's part of the aspects of salvation. We are born again to a new life. In John chapter 3, when Jesus is speaking with the Pharisee, Nicodemus, John says in the third verse of that chapter, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, the idea of the phrase in that verse, born again, is the idea of born from above. This indicates that this rebirth is spiritual and from God's power. Because what does Nicodemus ask? What? How can it, what do I get go back into my mother and be born a second time? And Christ responds, Are you not a teacher of Israel and you don't understand this? It is a work of the Spirit. Being born again is being born from above, indicates that it's through God's power. Regeneration gives us the ability to live a life that is pleasing to God. It is, its working is through the Holy Spirit and then allows us to begin to resist sin, to truly love one another. And there are other evidences and fruit of regeneration in the life of a believer. Some argue over the order of faith and regeneration. Do you have to have faith to be regenerated? Or do you get, or is the only way to express faith is through regeneration? God knows. <laughs> but I really think that, that a major part of that is that two of those elements, I think, happen kind of at the same time. In Acts 16, verse 14, we read, Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us, she was a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. The Lord opened her heart to hear the things spoken by Paul. This seems to indicate that Lydia was listening to Paul. She expressed faith and her heart and in, expressed faith in her heart, excuse me, and it was regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Now whether faith happens before and regeneration after, only God knows for sure. But I believe it is likely that a lot of those, that this faith and regeneration, these elements work almost simultaneously together in some way. Now, so now to the person that has believed has been regenerated, what else happens? Well, there's reconciliation. Reconciliation is a change in a relationship from hostility to peace between two parties. The main passages that teach reconciliation are Romans 5, 1 through 11, 
and 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21. But why is this an aspect of salvation? Remember, we were separated from, from God because of our sin. God is holy, and as sinners, we are not. Because of sin, there was enmity between God and humanity. We were God's enemies. Romans 5.10 explicitly says that as sinners, we were enemies of God. God understood us, viewed us as his enemies. And in verse 9 of Romans 5, we, there's an indication that as his enemies, we were under his wrath. That sounds familiar. That sounds like Ephesians 2. So if humanity, being the enemy of God, was under his wrath, what could be done to bring about peace and reconciliation to God? And as we discussed earlier, there was really nothing that we could do to make that change. And because of the depravity of our sinful nature, there was nothing that we really wanted to do. We were happy with doing things the way we wanted to do them. But Romans 5.10 is also clear that reconciliation was brought about because of the death of Jesus Christ. We also see in 2 Corinthians 5.21, we read, For he, God, made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of of God in him. Now there is discussion over who is reconciled. What do I mean? Is God reconciled to man? Is man reconciled to God? Or are they rec- or is God and man reconciled to each other? We're not really going to get into that discussion, but as I understand these passages and have come to believe, it is that only humanity is affected by reconciliation, meaning God was the one that was wronged, but God is the one who took initiative of, by, by reconciliation, meaning that God was the one that was wronged. He was the one who took the initiative and acted. Reconciliation affects our standing before God. You know, one of the objections that says to, to God being reconciled to humanity is that it seems to be in conflict with God's immutability, the fact that he does not change. 2 Corinthians 5.19 and Romans 5.10 seem to be very explicit, but God is the one who acted and that he reconciled humanity to himself. Charles Ryrie summarizes reconciliation this way. The need for reconciliation lies in God's enmity against sinful mankind. God took the initiative and reconciled the world to himself. This was done by the death of Christ, and that provision changed the world into a savable position before God. Yet the Yet though the world has been reconciled, man needs to be reconciled by changing his position about Christ. Then, and only then, is his condition before God changed. 
Now, another aspect of salvation is justification. Justification. This is also known as positional sanctification. I know these are big, complicated words. I'm going to try and explain these. Justification is also known as positional sanctification. That is that we are sanctified, we are set apart as holy or righteous positionally as we stand before the Lord. Justification is a legal term where someone is declared righteous. This doesn't create righteousness in the person. It only declares someone righteous. God, being gracious, provides salvation through the death of Jesus Christ. Christ's vicarious death, his dying in the place of sinners, allows God to legally declare us righteous. Christ, being righteous, died for sinners who were unrighteous. When we accept salvation through faith, God applies Christ's righteousness to our account. The term in theology for this is imputing Christ's righteousness. Christ's righteousness is put on our account because of the cross. The same cross that allows God, who is just, to declare us justified. Justification is the work of salvation from the penalty of sin. Justification is the work of salvation from the penalty of sin. And Paul discusses justification from Romans 3.21 through chapter 5.21. Justification is a cardinal doctrine of Christianity. Because it involves God's grace and faith. It is a cardinal doctrine of Christianity. Now another item is progressive sanctification. Now if justification is positional sanctification, we are, we are positionally declared righteous, and, the, and that it is our salvation from the penalty of sin, which is death and, and separation from God, then we have to understand, what we need to understand is progressive sanctification. Excuse me, is progressive sanctification. This is our ongoing growth in Christ as we overcome the power of sin in our lives. And this is Paul's primary topic in Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8. The Holy Spirit is the primary agent working in our progressive sanctification. Christ Christ prayed that the Father would sanctify his disciples through the truth. John 17, 17. This means that the Bible is foundational to our sanctification. Because without the word of God, how could we know how to please a holy God? And as we study the word, we see that every command and exhortation in the New Testament concerning holy living concerns our progressive sanctification.
Charles Ryrie summarizes the Spirit's work in our sanctification like this. It is by the Spirit that we put to death the deeds of the body, Romans 8, 13. The Spirit ignites love in our hearts, Romans 5, 5. By the Spirit, we are changed from glory to glory to become more and more like Christ, 2 Corinthians 3, 18. And it is the fruit of the Spirit that produces in us Christ-likeness which is the goal of sanctification, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But this totally isn't on the Holy Spirit. We don't just get to kick back and let him do work in us. The believer must be active as we seek to progress in our Christ-likeness. We have to be obedient to the word of God. We have to, in Paul's words, present ourselves as slaves to righteousness, Romans 6, 19. We need to be in prayer, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. Pray without ceasing. We need to do what we can to resist sin and temptation. Oh, I know if I go in this part of town, I'm going to be tempted to do this. I need to take another way to work. I know this store sells this item. That's going to be a problem for me. I'm not going in that store or not in that section of the store. We need to do what we can to resist sin and temptation. And as we work to do that, the Holy Spirit will help us. But we also need to serve God in our, as we are able to do so in the local church. Progressive sanctification is the work in the Christian life. This is an ongoing process in our lives from the day we accept Christ until we stand before him, either through death or the rapture. But this isn't the end. There is, in our understanding, a future sense of sanctification. If justification is salvation from the penalty of sin and present or progressive sanctification is the working of salvation over the power of sin, then we look for the finale where we are glorified and are saved from the presence of sin. And this is our last point, the finale. Glorification. Glorification is also known as perfect or future sanctification because we are saved from the very presence of sin. This glorification will fully be realized in the Christian at the second advent, the second coming of Christ. And a lot of this sanctification takes place with the believer's physical death. For saints of other times and other ages, ages, like many of the Old Testament saints, for example, this will occur at their resurrection in the end times. Now, as we, under, as we are dispensationalists and understand this, we understand that, God, that Christ's return is broken into two stages. The first being the rapture of the church. 
which is the removal of both the living and dead members of the church universal from this physical world before God begins the seven-year tribulation. After the tribulation is Christ's physical return to earth where he comes to set up his millennial kingdom. But what does glorification accomplish? Well, I mentioned it a little, a little bit earlier. But this future sanctification completes our sanctification process. And it eliminates, finally, totally, sin from the believer. This is why we say it is salvation from the very presence of sin. Though we have accepted Christ, we are still sinners. We still sin. God knows that. God realizes that. But we are in a position where we are able to resist temptation and to resist certain sins as we seek to be like Christ. There's a Latin phrase, and I'm going to mess it up, so I'm not going to say the Latin phrase. But the phrase is just simultaneously just and a sinner. And that's what Christians are. We have, those of us who have accepted Jesus Christ, we stand before God just. We are declared righteous. But we still live in this physical world and we are still sinners. But like I said, it doesn't end there. Our hope is future where we are removed from sin's presence, and sin is no longer an issue. There will be no effect of sin in our body, soul, or spirit at that time. Now, I meant to read this section earlier, and I didn't. Paul has a lengthy discussion on our sanctification, on the sanctification of the believer's body and the resurrection or transformation of church saints in 1 Corinthians 15. I, I meant to read a portion of the passage earlier and I didn't. So 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 54, yeah, beginning in verse 53. For this corruptible, this physical body must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We see that element of the transformation and we see parts of the glorification there. In Philippians 3, Paul says that Christ will transform our lowly body so that it will be conformed to his glorious body. And then in Colossians 3, Paul says that when Christ is revealed, we will also appear or be revealed with him in glory. 
Roland McCune summarizes glorification this way. Future sanctification issues the believer into a perfectly holy state that he will be without blame and holiness before God our Father. 1 Thessalonians 3.13. And in the words of John, he will be like him. 1 John 3.2. Conformed in creaturely holiness or holy humanity as is the God-man. In other words, the future state of the believer will be a state completely saved, not just from the penalty of sin, not just over the power of sin in our lives, but complete salvation from the presence of sin itself. And our bodies will be changed to a glorified state. We will be able to stand before God without blame and truly holy because we are conformed finally to the image of Christ. We will have a glorified body like that of Christ resurrected, glorified body. Today we saw there is a lot we have to be thankful for. And why we should be thankful to God for our physical blessings. But as Christians, the most important thing we should be thankful for is our salvation. Since that moment that we accepted Christ as Savior, we have stood justified. That is saved from the penalty of sin. We have been regenerated or born again to a new spiritual life. We have been reconciled to God so that we are at peace with God and no longer his enemies because of our sin. And as we go through the Christian life, we grow and mature in our Christianity. And though in one way we are saved from the power of sin now, we still struggle with sin in our lives. But as we continue to grow and read scripture and pray and we seek to live a life of holiness, we overcome the power of sin more and more in our daily lives as the sanctification is being worked out. Though sometimes this is a struggle and it is hard to be thankful for things as we're working through them, we can be thankful because we have the Holy Spirit to assist us in overcoming our sins. And we can be thankful that we have the hope of a future saved from the presence and all the effects of sin. We can be thankful that we have this hope of a future spent with Christ free from the presence of sin. So all these things we have to be thankful for. But nothing is more important than our salvation. There is no more important reason to give thanksgiving to God than for the salvation that we have. If you have questions about salvation or are unsure of your own salvation, then please don't hesitate. During this closing song, if you feel led, please come forward. I would be happy to talk with you at the end of service. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we are so thankful for the truths of salvation that you have given to us. that you have put in your word through the hand of Paul and, and the other writers of scripture that 
all the aspects of salvation that we have and things that we look forward to and hope for. Lord, sometimes this life can be a struggle and we struggle to be holy and we fail time and again. But Lord, we know that we, if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And Lord, we stand righteous before you, not on our own account, but because Christ's righteousness covers, covers us. That he has paid our account. So Father, we are so, so grateful for salvation. And we pray that Our, our thankfulness will always be directed to you for salvation and every other blessing that you have given to us. Lord, you have blessed us in so many ways, but we thank you today specifically for all the blessings of salvation that you have given to us. And Father, we pray for those who may be here this morning or those that we know that have not accepted you or, or we are concerned about, Lord, we pray that your spirit would get a hold of them, that your spirit would cause them to, to seek out, seek us out at the church, seek us out in our, our daily lives, that we will be able to really walk them through the plan of salvation so that they can know these joys and blessings and give you thanksgiving for, the, for it as well. We thank you, we love you, and we praise you, Father. And we pray these things in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.